born in any other place in the U.S. Approximately 82% of people born in Texas still lived here in 2021. Per research released Tuesday, data analyzed shows that Texas is by far the stickiest state in the country, with North Carolina coming in second, followed by Georgia, California, and Utah. Stickiness refers to the share of people who stay in their native state over time, a high level of stickiness could signal a strong culture that may attach natives to their home state or high poverty rates that make it harder to move, according to the Pew Research Center. Support this local newscast and this station now by becoming a member at kpft.org. And thanks for tuning in to 90.1 KPFT Houston. Thank you for supporting Community Radio, KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM. We are back. Welcome to Growing Up in America here on 90.1 KPFD Pacifica Radio, a discussion on our children, oh my gosh, all our children, public policy, and how we do as a city and community when it comes to taking care of all of our kids. Growing Up in America is a production of Children at Risk, the Voice of Texas Children, a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of Texas youth. Each week, we aim to fill these same 60 minutes with lively discussion on the children of Texas with experts on the quality of life of our children. This is Claire Duche and... Hi, I'm Sharon Watkins-Jones, Chief Equity Officer, Children at Risk. That is awesome. We are excited to have Sharon in the house. And we also have some great special guests calling in today, as we always do. We have Dr. Townstead. Did you say Lone Star? Lone Star College. Lone Star College, our very own wonderful university close to home. She is a professor of higher education here to talk about maternal mortality in women of color. We have Celeste Barreto, founder and CEO of Tesley's Group, LLC. She does a lot with consulting and coaching for schools and nonprofits, so we're excited to get into some education conversation there. Alicia Lee with Mental Health America. No, that is not it, but that is their abbreviation. (laughs) She is the director of March of Dimes, but we will have Mental Health America one day, as we did last week. But we're excited to March of Dimes to talk a little bit more about maternity care, Desert Report. Report. My speech impediment came through there. And then Nicola Springer, the executive VP and director of Pre-K through 12 Projects for Kirksey Architecture. So very woman and education-centric conversation, which debatably is my two favorite conversations to ever have. And since we're about uh, seven days away, well, maybe two weeks away from Beyonce coming to Houston in concert, (laughs) we can honestly today say who runs the world? Girls. Girls. (laughs) And we can also put another plea out for Beyonce to join us the Wednesday before she or after she performs and gives us the performance of a lifetime. Um, I still am scrambling to get tickets. Oh boy! Yeah, yeah. I'm wow. I'm fighting the battle of waiting till the price drops, but I need to be in the Beehive. Um, I understand. I understand. My daughter is coming to town just specifically to be in the Beehive. So, <laughs> and she will. I hope your daughter gets a special shout out. I've been seeing some some crowd shout outs yeah. from the Queen herself. But today, our number of the day. This is probably my chance of getting Beyonce tickets at a reasonable price is 15%. <laughs> I would agree with you there. <laughs> yeah. But aside from uh, Queen Bee, what do you think 15% means? Um, 15% is probably the number of teachers who are extremely happy to be back at work right now. <laughs> yeah. We can talk about that. How, how are you hearing in education around all of those? Oh, my friends, especially are, my in friends Houston. who are teaching are really struggling. Um, it's There's just a, lot of, a lot going on. Yeah, I just want to say that accepting all children in the classroom is not dangerous and no. should not be policied. That's right. I agree with you. Um, and I, I give a lots of love to the teachers as they now struggle to find 
uh, a median for having a welcoming classroom while now staying on a super strict curriculum plan. I treated my favorite teacher yesterday to a, a little happy hour, so I hope that she's feeling much better today. <laughs> I hope she's not feeling a little bit worse from the happy hour. Right. But I, I'm team treat your teacher's friends to happy hours and give them give them a lot of hugs this week. It is, it's a rough week um, going in. I'm going to say 15%. Actually, I probably just agree with you on that one. Um, or maybe 15% of students feel ready for the new school year as they jump into curriculum on day one. Yep. But let's hope that we can bring that. Let me do some math real quick. That would be 85%. I taught math and it took me a while now (laughs) of students that we need to catch up this week and really just welcome with open arms, Mm -hmm. practice SEL. But we can go ahead and get into our thumbs up, thumbs down. As we do every week, we're starting with our thumbs up, thumbs down, which is a conversation we carried onto our Instagram story at Children at Risk, all lowercase, all together for the audience and those listening or those just following to join in. So today's thumbs up, thumbs down topic is should parents encourage their children to participate in team sports? So I guess thumbs up, thumbs down, children slash team sports. Yeah. So um, my grown children both participated in team sports, um, football, basketball, cheer, uh, softball, dance. We were super busy. Yeah, you, know, of you were the, in the car carpooling often. In the often. car, all the time, weekends. Sundays. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, the pros are, are obvious, you know, uh, social skills, team, ability to work as a team, yeah. um, you know, learning to lose and win gracefully, yeah. you know, and the, the cons are obvious too, you know, always being on the go, um, not having a lot of downtime, even in the summers, because even if, yeah. if your sport is dance in the summer, you have intensives and you have oh, travel. You have a break. And, yeah. You know, <laughs> so dance. so um, I can honestly say in retrospect that, you know, of course, college scholarships were a result of their Huge. extracurricular activities, you know, but um, just, there just wasn't a lot of downtime. And, you know, I do I do recall kind of wishing We've been able to stop and smell the roses a little bit along the way, but but overall, it's a good good thing. I agree. And then from an educator perspective, as you can relate, the accountability piece, it Mm -hmm. helps as a teacher because when you partner with their coach, because if their grades are slipping, then they can't play and vice versa and not to use that as a a crutch all the time, but it's a good partnership to have. It does work. (laughs) Yeah, it works for one. And two, it's encouraging because if they don't have some kind of creative outlet, sometimes it's not in the classroom, it's outside, but it still keeps them in school. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's a community that some kids need. Right, right. Um, There is definitely the injury piece, especially when we get into Mm -hmm. football, especially with... um, We were really lucky. I think think we were really lucky to not have any major injuries, you know, a couple couple of bruises and bumps and scrapes, but I do know some kids who had some career ending injuries you know and that's really scary yeah it's it's definitely a a pros and cons I I do see more pros the con is obviously if the parent I had an aunt that did not let any of her kiddos do after school activities Mm -hmm. for the sake of having to drive them and commit her time as well which I do see but in retrospect if there's any way to have it I know my Mm -hmm. school they had a bus that happened after after school activities and so if there's a way to plug them in I don't think completely discourage your kids there's also clubs there's right other avenues lifelong friendships too I know, I know. It's also the time balance. I I work with one student who is in dance, and it's intense when you get Mm -hmm. fully in, and it's almost every day after school, and so trying to find the time to do homework is hard. But it is also the win. I'm going to see the silver lining of they learn time management fairly True. fairly quickly. And if that's a passion that develops, then yeah. then it also leads them to you know later career decisions. Like I have one child that was that danced her whole you know childhood and is now 
and arts management. You know, my other awesome. my other son who was you know had football on his brain twenty four seven is now you know considering you know sports communication. So you know it, it helps them yeah. figure out what they want to do. It shows them other opportunities through outside of the classroom, and you can apply. You can always, as a teacher, talk to them about. When you get the question of, when will I use this? Right. Well, this is how it looks like in your sports. I'm a big nerd, so I'd be like, this is how physics plays out. Yes. Not that that's something they're really looking at. But, yeah, I'm I'm going to stay some thumbs up. Same. Encouraging. But if you have an opinion, as you should, and you should vocalize that, go ahead and head on to our Instagram stories and vote for your own idea of thumbs up, thumbs down. As we wait for our guests to join us, we're going to talk a little bit about when Dr. Townstead, maternal mortality in women of color. And I think we actually were co-hosts when we talked a little bit about this with, um, I was about to say au pair, that's not it, the doula that calls in. Yeah. Um, And it was my introduction to statistics that I still share and were pretty jarring to me Mm -hmm. in how we treat women. They're extremely jarring. I mean, the report that came out last December or January, um, especially as it relates to women of color, black women are two times more likely than white women and four times more likely than Hispanic women to die related, related to pregnancy and childbirth. And then the statistics also show that the majority of those deaths are totally preventable. You know, those causes are treatable and, you know, it just begs the question, what, is going what on. is happening? Where's the gap? And I think either you or they mentioned that it wasn't until recently they assumed women of color were stronger and didn't need as much. That's true. Care. That's true. There are actual textbooks out there um, and professors, who, even without the textbooks in medical schools that, you know, perpetuate those myths that black skin is thicker than white skin and that there are Very dangerous fewer right pain there. receptors and... Um, you know, it's just a, it's just amazing the myths that continue to float around and you know affect Perpetuate. women of color. Yeah, I actually heard an interesting stat or conversation I was in this weekend about textbooks and how Texas is really setting. Um, I'm not say dangerous, but a precedent because the textbook industry looks to us first and right. wants to help out Texas school and systems first since we're mm-hmm. the largest. Uh, what do you call it? Consumer, I guess. Of textbooks. of textbooks yeah but what they produce for us they're going to give to the rest of the state because they're not going to print 101 different copies and so seeing a lot of the terminology and rhetoric that's going around is dangerous if we're if we're saying that in our state and in our legislation to put it in textbooks um, that's what the whole country is going to be studying it looks like we've got um, Celeste Barreto the founder and CEO of Tessaly's group and she's a it's a consulting and coaching firm and she's here to talk to us about um the pressures on teachers and leaders during this Houston Independent School District takeover. I'm excited for that. Let's move to Celeste. We cut the legs off of our pants, threw our shoes into the ocean, sit back and wave through the daylight. We now are moving over. We're going to come back to the conversation before, but with Celeste Barreto. Celeste, are you with us? I'm here. Can you hear me okay? We can. We're excited, and thank you for joining us today to talk a little bit about teachers and leaders during this HISD takeover in action, and just in general, maintaining safe campuses, resurgence of covid Et cetera, et cetera. So if you just wanted to start off (laughs) by giving um, a landscape analysis maybe of your work and then also how you're seeing education start off in this new school year. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's wonderful to be able to talk with you about this today. And I think most important to know about me is that I'm an HISD parent um, and I have three kids who are at school today on their third day of school. And so the the situation in Houston ISD um, not only is very personal to me because it's been education has been my work for 16 years and change, but also because 
my kids are attending our schools right now. So far, so good this week. <laughs> they, uh, they've, they've all come home happy, which is uh, really important to me. Um, but some of the work that I do, so I have been a full-time district administrator uh, or campus administrator for some time. So I was a teacher, an assistant principal, principal, and district administrator for the last 16 years. And I recently decided that I would spend some time supporting districts and nonprofits uh, in, you know, basically leadership development, executive coaching work, uh, and some strategy work as well. So those are some of the things that I do and am doing. So I have a lot of intimate understanding of what principals, not only here in Houston, are experiencing, but across the state and uh, and even in New Mexico, which is where a little bit of my work is as well. So that's a little bit about what I do. And I think as a community member and somebody who cares a lot about our district, we have definitely all seen our headlines. And those have been really interesting. And I think uh, when, as, a, as an educator myself, I, I empathize deeply with the teachers, principals, and the district leaders who are starting the really challenging work of reopening a school year in the face of quite a bit of change, as you alluded to just a moment ago. So that's something that I think is really tough any year, and particularly this year with this giant spotlight on our entire district and, and in every every day, the headlines are stacked with something <laughs> right. about what's happening in tonight. So. Right. And we spoke a little, or at least I, I brought it up at the beginning of this show, because it's not just in Houston ISD. We're seeing this pattern sure. in the headlines across districts of really an attack on SEL in schools, um, whether it be through just decorating classrooms and posters, the infrastructure, um, the way you address students. How do you think... This is affecting this push against that push for curriculum, all in a rise of mental health needs of students. Yeah, you know, I think something that has been really heavy on my heart is just the depth of reverence I have for the seat of the teacher, for the seat Mm -hmm. of the principal. Those are incredibly difficult jobs, and I don't know anyone who, any, any of the people who I've met in the last 16 and change years who's gone into those roles thinking, you know, I can't wait to hurt some kids. (laughs) You know, that's not what they're there to do. What they want is to contribute to improving outcomes for kids. And I, I deeply believe that pretty much anybody who goes into this work, that's what they want. So we step into these roles thinking this is, you know, I'm going to be faced with um, the opportunity to, use great instructional materials to teach kids things and for them to learn and have opportunities in life. I find the, the kind of questions that we're seeing and and you called it an attack. And I agree on educators and on classrooms, the quintessential distraction Mm -hmm. from what they're there to do. They're there to keep kids safe, make sure that they feel loved and included and to teach them stuff. And you have to be able to do both of those things. When I, uh, I think a lot about my, one of my kids' principals, they go to three different HSD schools, which you can imagine is a challenge in the morning. <laughs> Just carpool alone. But, <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, but one of them is faced with a bunch of uh, construction on all the streets mm. kind of surrounding the school, right? And this is a well-resourced area of the city, so there's a lot of pressure on the principal to do something about this. And I'm sort of like, hey, guys, the principal's job is to make sure that the stuff going on inside the school is excellent. Anytime we're asking for his attention about construction or or whatever else, some of these much more controversial things like you referenced, classroom decorations and accusations about indoctrination and things, we're actually distracting the grown-ups in the building from doing what they're there to do with our kids. And so when I think about the kind of pressures they're facing, uh, it's, it's very challenging to kind of clear away that noise as a teacher and as a leader and stay focused on achieving outcomes with kids. So, Yeah, and you mentioned the staffing 
of a school. And we want to get in a little bit of that um, just for the audience yeah. too. I think when you're not in a district or in a school for too long or just involved in the HR process of schools from the outside, it's a general understanding of, um, well, you're not outreaching enough or where's the barriers that are keeping teachers from the classroom besides of course, the social pressures and implication and time management and pay, but for (laughs) the list goes on, but for the general staffing shortage question, what are some barriers when we talk about certification? And a lot of the reason why Mm -hmm. we see teachers leaving is not really pay anymore. It's also that they don't feel prepared and they don't feel like the professional development equipped them enough to enter a classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think a couple of things come to mind for me. One, uh, Houston ISD specifically is in a situation where they're not facing the kind of staffing shortages that we've seen amplified over the last few years. And that would be a whole nother show, I think, for us to talk through why that might be. Right. Um, so I want to just like offer that as a caveat. Um, but I do think that over the last several years, one, our state certification rates, and this is actually a true national trend as well, have just tanked. So teachers mm-hmm. com- able to complete teacher certification programs themselves has, we, we've just seen a decline. We've, I think, also seen the, expectations of those programs also rise without necessarily offering broadly, and this isn't true in every case, but without broadly uh, offering the supports, I think, in alignment with meeting those higher expectations. So teachers have to take many more tests and that would be a whole other show for us to talk about <laughs> those. But, you know, so in each area you're having to, uh, just jump through a lot of hoops in order to get certified. Now, we want for teachers to have a rigorous bar for certification, and we also want to make sure that there's a, a pathway for them to actually achieve that. So I think a combination of a lot of different things have put us in a situation where we have fewer certified teachers. We know that for sure. Mm-hmm. And we also have fewer teachers in the pipeline. So ed schools, enrollments are down. Um, And then we have some of the other challenges that we've alluded to a bit, right? Like increased mental health needs. We have kids who are catching up on unfinished learning and that amplified by the impact of COVID-19 over the last several years. And how is a teacher who's brand new, fresh to the classroom, who heads to a school that's dealing with staffing shortages, going to get the support that they need? No program could prepare them for what they're about to walk into. It's incredibly difficult work and the political climate in just <laughs> in our great. whole country isn't helping. <laughs> right. And talking a little bit about away from the distractions for the parents listening, for potential school leadership listening, what would you say mm-hmm. or encourage them to block out the noise and what to actually focus on in, um, in supporting the teachers of their students in supporting their students? How, What's almost the secret sauce in what actually matters right now and how we can unite against all these distractions? Sure. I love that you called it a secret sauce because I think there, there probably is a secret sauce and that I, I think really is grounded in the depth of the relationships you build with kids Mm -hmm. and their families. I, you know, I'm sure I drive my kids to school nuts and, (laughs) (laughs) and, I will bend over backwards to support them because while we may not always disagree or agree rather, what we do have is a trusting relationship. And because they have invested in me and in my kids, I, I don't bother them with (laughs) things like uh, construction or concerns about library books because I actually trust my child's teachers. And so I think what I would say is Invest the time in building relationships with kids and families. And furthermore, I would say also set clear boundaries and communicate those boundaries for yourself. As a school leader, communicate. Here is what is important to me. Here's the things that are not going to get you as much of my time with love. (laughs) And here's the things that we are going to focus on. Here's what I can guarantee I'm going to stay focused on. And I would offer the same to teachers because there's going to be noise, even in the best situation. Parents are going to send you an email at midnight. And if you 
get mad about it. Don't get mad. Just don't answer it until 8 a.m. or whatever your email answering time is. Right. The good 10-hour rule. Um, Perfect. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. So I think deep relationships, setting boundaries for yourself. And the last thing that I will say about this, what I would offer, is deeply connect with your own values and purpose. Why are you doing this? Um, like I started with earlier, it's probably because you believed in the students who you were about to, to support. You believed in what they could achieve and in what you yourself could achieve. Stay reconnected with that. Lean on your, your colleagues because it's something that shouldn't be done alone. And then focus in on that secret sauce of trusting relationships. And I think you can, you can get through and cut through that noise. Um, and, you know, keep your classroom door open, closed, whatever your district asks you to do. <laughs> you feel like um, you'll be re-advised every week. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but stay focused in on what really right. matters. And that's on the students who are in your classroom, on the students in your building and impacting the trajectory of their lives. Cause that's what we're holding in our hands on every day when we walk into those classrooms. Right. I love that we're ending on a light note because I like to keep hope in the name of 40% of Texas children here in Houston. But thank you, Celeste, yeah. for calling in. And of course, we'll have you back on to talk the million and one oh, education conversations. Thank you. Moving on after that fun introduction, even though he cut Beyonce, we have our very own Christine Thomas, our Associate Director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation. Christine, how are you? Thank you. I'm great. Hi, Christine. How is the weather in San Antonio? Oh, it's the same as always, just really hot and sunny. (laughs) Perfect. Do you have any, we got a little breeze this morning. Did you see any of that? We have been getting these random rain showers, um, which is a little bit like torture because you're like, is this going to last? And and obviously it doesn't. Um, So I still need to go out and water those plants if if any of them are still alive. (laughs) I know. Our plants are hanging on for life, but we'll we'll hope and pray for those. But the number of the day that we're excited for you to tell us about might actually be the percent of rain for the year, and that is 15%. It's it's not. I think it's probably <laughs> it's higher close. than this, actually. Um, but what is it, I, actually? Yeah, I don't mean to, to put a damper on such a conversation that ended on a happy note. We are going to be talking about um, 50% is the Texas increase in overall mater- maternal mortality rates. That was in uh, this data hasn't been updated since at least 2020 figures came out, um, but it you know, for 2019. So when we're talking about maternal mortality rates, they're really talking about a bigger, larger systemic and bias rooted in our society that impacts people's health outcomes. So when we're World Health Organization talks about the maternal deaths occur in low, lower middle income countries due to a lack of resources. So with Texas having the highest uninsured rate in the country, no Medicaid expansion, Texans should be concerned. I know there was legislation this year um, to expand uh, Medicaid coverage up to 12 months. And as of, I know of June, that bill has not been signed by our governor. So yes, Texans should still be concerned. Yeah, so um, just a little update. I think the the bill did end up getting signed by the governor. Ah. So um, the, there's Medicaid expansion for up to 12 months. Um, and one of the things I wanted to point out how in in Texas, and particularly among black women, socioeconomic status doesn't have much bearing on um, 
the the vulnerability to mm-hmm. maternal mortality. So I'm glad you mentioned the systemic biases because that has more to do with why women of color have a greater maternal mortality than their socioeconomic status, whether or not they are in poverty or uninsured. Yeah, so we are seeing that, yeah, definitely uh, black women are definitely taking, um, having the higher disparities when it comes to maternal mortality rates, and not even in Texas, but across the U.S. Um, Texas saw an increase in rates this year as well. Um, and so when we're talking about um, these deaths, they're actually 90% of these deaths are also preventable. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with, um, you know, there, there's several reasons that they can be pre- preventable, but when we're also, majority of these deaths are due to hemorrhage. Yeah. So they're seeing most commonly atopic pregnancy. So again, that comes into our laws, our state laws. A lot of these people can't see uh, a doctor until after 10 weeks. Right. And so obviously if the pregnancy is not viable, there's a lot of harm doing so. There's a lot, again, systemic and then when we when we talk about biases, yes, it's you know effort are really missing the mark for people of color, especially in the Houston community, where it's higher um, across the state than across the state. Um, I've definitely we heard saw a that lot white of white women. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say I've definitely so heard Houston, a lot of anecdotal stories of women who knew that they were in trouble. Um, and weren't taken seriously, you know, their their pain wasn't taken seriously or the level of discomfort they were having was dismissed and then, you know, bigger problems ensued. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, even outside of maternal mortality, just women trying to be heard for any type of pain, mm-hmm. I saw a joke that's not that funny because it, it's fairly serious, but I know that the um, person running the skit was trying to get the point across that any complaint a woman brings up, the first response is pregnancy, testing for pregnancy. It's never uh, taken, I think, with much seriousness, and it's just disheartening to hear. Sure. And hopefully there's more addressing it in practice, in the systems themselves, in the higher education systems, um, in I know I'm thinking oh, residencies. I just lost the word for a second because with 90% being preventable. And like you said, it's not socioeconomic. It's not lack of resource. Um, it's really just, we're not listening to women, women of color. I mean, it's a lack of resource in terms of training available. Right. right? Mm-hmm. I think there's this, um, you know, there's something that's being, that's not being done. You know, why is it that, we're seeing differences in white women in terms of they had almost a 50% decrease in maternal mortality rate, whereas women of color had a 33% increase. So there's huge differences. And um, yeah, I, I think that when people go into the doctor's office, you know, their concerns seem to be heard. Yeah. And it's, I, I hope the training and the resources expand. It's hurtful or I guess loss of hope in a time where um, the word equity is under attack, the word diversity is under attack, departments at universities are being wiped um, for the sake of lack of knowledge and pure distraction from other issues while in conjunction we're attacking women's health as a whole before birth. And um, yeah, I I just think it's, it's going to take a lot to start addressing this issue. And as we see in a lot of our issues, it's hard when you try to overturn system bias. Yes. I mean, healthy mothers, healthy, healthy women, healthy mothers, healthy children. Right. So I think it's absolutely important that um, Texas needs to tackle this to, for the, for the children. Right. I saw somewhere like for every 100 women that are, are whose lives are lost due to um, maternal mortality, there are 300 children that have lost a mother. So mm-hmm. That is very scary. Do you know of any organizations or advocates we could highlight that are fighting these system-level changes? Yeah, I know. In, there in, is. Go ahead, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, in, in Dallas, uh, I'm, really, I'm really fond of the AFIA Women's Health Center that is tackling that issue. Very awesome. AFIA's mm-hmm. Women's Health. Christine? Yeah, Texas Department did, you know, they realized this is an issue 
a long time ago, about 10 years ago. So they did create this maternal mortality morbidity review committee. There have been efforts. Um, you know, I think there needs to um, maybe get some, some, you know, people need to check into that. And that's where, like, advocates and you're right, nonprofit organizations need to start um, um, questioning and looking at who's involved, you know, who needs to be at that table. Right. Well, thank you, Christine, for calling in. We are, I don't want to say happy, but we look forward at least to date of the day and look forward to bringing light to these issues to hopefully engage our audience more. Um, And again, it just starts with education. And so thank you for always bringing education to Harris County issues. Thank you. Bye. Drive a roll up the partition, please. I don't need you seeing your say on her knees. To 45 minutes to get all dressed up. We even gonna make it to this club. Now my mascara running red lipstick smudge. Oh, he's so honey, yeah, he wants to. Mm. He popped on my buttons and he ripped my blouse. He mine a color whiskey all on my gown. Water daddy daddy didn't bring the towel. Oh, baby, 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 I slow it down. To 45 minutes to get all dressed up. And because I bullied Rico into playing Beyonce, we had a great introduction for our next guest, Alicia Lee, director of March of Dimes. Alicia, are you with us? Yes. Hello. Hi. We are excited to have you on and continue a very thematic conversation talking about um, the report recently that put out that was put out by March of Dimes talking about maternity care deserts and the crisis of access and equity. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today. Super excited to tell your listeners what March of Dimes has really dug into and uncovered about access to care for our pregnant women. Yeah. Can you go ahead? We talked just now a little bit. We just gave the audience an overview of maternal mortality rates in Harris County in Texas. Um, So segueing into that, into this report and give a general overview of the scope of problem that you're seeing. Sure, yes. So um, March of Dimes, um, you know, we are leading the, um, the country and we are fighting for the health of all of our moms and babies here in the United States. And in our most recent set of um, reporting and research that we um, just released, we've really gone into depth into every state and said, what does it look like where you live and what is a maternity care desert? And why is that important for our community, our pregnant folks to know about where they live and the access to care that they receive? And we know that many, many women, they struggle um, to access the care before, during, as well as after their pregnancy journey. And based upon where you live, it is not equal. It's not consistently available. Um, it's not equitable as well. Right. Um, and we know that um, there's many, many reasons as to the why we have these maternity care deserts, which is defined by March of Dimes, where we don't have an availability in the county of a birthing facility. So a hospital with an obstetric ward or a birthing center, um, there's no maternity care provider providing obstetrics. So there's no OBGYN, there's no family medicine physician that provides maternity care, um, or there's no certified nurse midwife. Um, and then we also look at um, the number of uninsured women who um, are, are living in that county. Um, and in Texas, what our research and our data found is that Essentially, one in two counties in Texas is considered that maternity care desert. So we have a lot of work to do, and I'm really excited to just tell you more about what's in here. Yeah, you said one in two, correct? Yes. So about half, a little under half of our Texas counties are a maternity care desert. Yeah, that's that's a big issue, because even if we expand Medicaid, if there's no access to um, act on that in your area, then we can see we're we're not helping women. Um, I know in the report you mapped Title 10 
clinic locations and availability in Texas specifically. Can you talk a little bit about what Title X clinics are and what their importance is? Yeah, sure. So Title X clinics, so those are federally funded healthcare sites, and they provide low-cost reproductive healthcare services to um, to women and to families, and this can include contraception. It can include a wellness exam. It can also include breast and cervical screenings. And we know that that access to family planning, it's really important because it allows an individual to achieve their pregnancy goals around having a child, when they choose to have a child, the timing of that, as well as the spacing between their pregnancy. Because we know that if an individual has an uninspected, unexpected pregnancy, or if there's too little time between pregnancies, that could potentially contribute to the adverse outcomes, those poor outcomes that we see for both mom and baby. So that could be something like a preterm birth. So the birth of a baby before 37 weeks gestation, it could also potentially be um, depression, anxiety, or even, you know, just as your previous caller said, it could be that um, maternal death um, or infant um, death that is unfortunately happening. And so in Texas, um, I don't have fantastic news to tell you. Um, we have, um, per 100,000 women, we have 2.8 Title X clinics in our state. As we look at that compared to um, across the country, um, there's 5.3 clinics per 100,000 individuals um, as we look overall in the United States. Um, and then if you actually look at the mapping of where our Title X clinics are located, so if you you know pull up the state of Texas and you look at the pink dots, as I call them, because that's what our map um, is showing, it's mainly concentrated, not surprisingly, though, based upon our conversation, these are in urban and suburban areas. And so our women who are living um, in these maternity care deserts, they're having to travel sometimes 3.2 times further just to reach a Title X clinic for that um, preventative service as compared to someone who lives in a county that has full access to maternity care services. Yeah, that is, it's not great news. Where do you see nationally or in Texas the gap? Is it funding? Is it lack of knowledge? Why? How can we get more Title X clinics? How can we get more access for women in these rural areas or even in urban areas that are on wait list? Sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's, it's a combination of all of the above of what you just said. So I think that, you know, it is a, it's a funding mechanism. Um, it is Title X is funded by the state. You know, in Texas, we have a, a program that's called Family Planning Services that does reproductive um, services such as contraception and wellness exams and these breast and cervical cancer screenings for both um, men and women. And, you know, thanks to the legislature this past session, um, an unprecedented amount of dollars were put into the family planning services for Texas. But it's still, it's the it's the location of where those, those clinics are. And, you know, we need additional providers um, who can provide those services. So not just necessarily a, an OBGYN, but we need some family, family medicine physicians um, provide maternal services. We also know that there are certified nurse midwives um, as that advanced practice nurse. Um, they are also providing um, these family planning services and, um, you know, being able to, to see someone also that looks like you. Um, you know, we know that there's a... Um, uh, the individuals who are going into healthcare um, is the socioeconomics, the the debt that someone takes on for an individual of of color, for a black um, individual, for a brown individual, um, the exposure that they receive um, in their education. Um, you know, all of these are contributing factors for what our workforce does and doesn't necessarily look like. Who's then able to work um, and treat our our moms? Yeah, and I, I'm sure all of it may have been, but is there anything in particular in the research that was shocking to you? So, you know, I I say that unfortunately nothing was really shocking because in Texas we have the dubious honor and distinction of having the highest rate of uninsured individuals, which then means we have the highest rate of uninsured individuals of child, childbearing age. We know that... Um, Access to care and to the health insurance um, for low-income individuals is only but one 
factor, but the fact that a, a low-income woman cannot receive access to um, Medicaid, which is the program for um, low-income individuals in our state of Texas and in the country, she can't receive that access to Medicaid until she is pregnant, until she has a positive pregnancy test. So imagine being um, someone who, who believes she's pregnant, thinks she's pregnant, but she can't see that um, health care provider until she's gotten that positive pregnancy test. And she may not know that she's pregnant um, at the time. Um, we also know that um, allowing a woman to have the opportunity to, to plan and to space um, her pregnancy does allow her um, additional um timing um, for when she she can um, seek the care. Um, we also know that there's community level factors that are associated with access to care. And so um, where you live, do you have access to, say, transportation, the public transportation if you don't own a car? Um, the, the nearest bus line may be out your front door or it might be, you know, a half a mile or a mile or many, many ways away from you because of um, how our public transportation runs, and it may take you several bus trips in order to to get to a clinic. Um, So what we really want to do with our report is to provide that awareness to folks um, and to our lawmakers, to our legislators, to our our public, to your your listeners, um, to help them develop the knowledge to then provide that advocacy for the individual in their life or to their um, to their lawmaker, or um, you know, to the the community that they that they live in and that they work in, um, to provide that knowledge um, and increase that um, awareness for others. Yeah, I uh, thank you so much for the report. I'll definitely myself, and I assume all listeners will be diving more into this. Um, one last thing before you jump off: Is there anything that our listeners can do to act upon this information you've presented? Sure, absolutely. Like I said, the first of all, it's just developing the awareness of the issue. So thank you so much for having me and for um, you know providing this information to to your to your listeners. You know, at March of Dimes, we have long supported policies to help improve that access to quality health care um, through our blanket change um, initiative, which is really. Um, talking to lawmakers and telling them this is what we need to do in legislation, legislatively, in order to um, make change for for our for our country. And it comes to the health of moms and babies. Um, you know, we will continue to address this issue through the research, through the funding that we have, um, and definitely want to encourage um, your listeners to go to our website um, and to, to to see the report for themselves. And that can be accessed at marchofdimes.org. And that's marchofdimes.org slash MCDR. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to continuing our partnership. Thank you. But certainly not least, we have Nicholas Bringer with Kirksey, not Kirky, Architecture to discuss one of my newfound loves, and that's school architecture. Hello. Good afternoon. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So we have you on today. You've been a wonderful partner in some of our summits and just general conversations. So we're excited to bring this conversation to our radio listeners about welcoming, well-being, and wellness designing for schools for children and family. Wonderful, yeah. Yeah, could you just give an overview, since I I know, but our listeners might not, um, and it's exciting about how important the architecture and um, space that a building has impacts a student. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is you probably don't know how it's impacting you. Mm-hmm. And um, that is probably what's most, imp- that's what's really important. But 
um, you know, understanding how you feel and, you know, when you walk into a building that it feels welcoming and that welcomingness is the way that maybe the entryway is for children of a certain age, the scale will matter. And so you want to be able to feel like you're drawn into that space. Um, being able to see beyond corners would be important. And so you know that you see your space, you understand your space, and it feels welcoming. Um, being able to see outside and see outdoors and see natural daylight. Those are all important cues from the standpoint of just walking up to the building in the first place. Um, you know, buildings without windows seem dark or you don't know where you are. And so that's one of the things we want to make sure when we're designing a building at the front, you know, you want it to feel welcoming. Um, certainly, there's lots of concerns around safety and things like that. And often when people think about something being safe, then things, doors start to close and mm -hmm. windows start to be covered up. And um, we do feel that there are ways that we can help maintain that open, inviting look for most, for all the days of the year that the kids are there so that they're not in a space that feels like a bunker. Um, I think welcomeness and wellness continues when you move inside the building and into your classrooms. And um, just even the hallways, the transitional spaces between classes become important. What do those look and feel like? You know, what are the surfaces? Are you, do you have enough space displaying all the student work? So when a student's there, they feel like, oh, this is my spot. This is where I, this is where I'm celebrated, you know? This is my home away from home. And um, then when you get into the classroom, you know, what does that space feel like? You know, one of the things we do talk about is that we're designing for all children, lots of different types of learners, you know. Um, you know, some kids are very visual learners. Some kids learn through movement. Some kids are auditory learners. And some kids are all those wrapped together. And making sure that we create an environment that allows that child to learn in their best way is important. It also means having a great space where the teacher can do her job well, right? Um, I often say, you know, if a good teacher can teach in a barn, imagine how she would teach in a, um, a school built for the 21st century. And so designing those learning environments, again, where that child can find that spot, that position that they can learn best in, maybe they prefer to be able to sit near the window and have that opportunity to look outside and see outside and have their eyes focused back and forth. But then also there are children that, Maybe the space, they don't want that space to be that bright or they don't work that well in that space. So today we're seeing a lot of classrooms where you're able to design different environments in each classroom. And a big part of that, though it's not architecture, is the furniture and allowing students those multiple different positions to sit in. Um, you know, their bodies are growing. And so even as an architect, we're thinking about creating those different spaces in the classroom, and doing that with furniture as well. So um, lots of opportunity in design about, you know, making things fun and exciting for kids and for their teachers and giving them just making sure that they can find that spot where they can learn best. Well, as a former special education teacher, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you if there are any innovations that you can talk about in terms of classroom design for students with special needs? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, definitely designing, it sort of depends on what some of those special needs are, but, you know, the surfaces, um, what's going to, what can that surface be? You know, like your walls can have a texture to them, so a child can also have that opportunity to learn through learning. You know, if you think of, um, let's say, some of your autistic children mm -hmm. that, Surfaces can calm them down. Um, also, we talk about biophilia and whether you're a special needs child or, you know, um, you're a healthy, active child. Um, bringing natural materials into the classroom space has been shown to help, um, you know, facilitate learning, calm students down, make them, um, just make them comfortable because we want kids to be in a good place when they are learning. 
special needs kids, you know, definitely the type of flooring, um, what they're touching. You want to make sure that you're using um, healthy materials and things like that, um, not things that off-gas and things like that. Um, you want to think about acoustics, very important for all learners in that you want them to be able to hear clearly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when it comes to speech, they can repeat what they're hearing. They understand what they're hearing and they can respond to what's going on. So um, I think, you know, it's not just the walls and the, and the marker board, but just the surfaces and how they respond to the way students move around the space. I think, you know, you often see teachers who create spaces with rugs where you can keep calm. Um, and again, the furniture is for special needs students as well. You know, if you're a mobile student, you might want that armchair that feels cozy and can um, make you feel protected. Or you might want a different kind of lighting, you know, being able to dim the lights, whether you're closing the shades or the blinds or changing the light rhythms in a classroom, I'd say that's probably one of the special innovations that we've seen, you know, dimmable lights, but tunable lights to um, the different types of light colors that you might have during the day. And we talk about circadian rhythms and how those light colors help to regulate a child um, within that space. So. I think we're going to have you come and design our office space. <laughs> no, I'm like becoming calm as you talk right. about these features. And so, um, thank you so much, Nicola. We do have just a couple fun questions that we always ask our last guest guest mm-hmm. relating my speech today, relating okay. to your childhood. So the first oh, wow. one, and probably my favorite on this list, is if you could swap lives with any fictional character from a book, movie, or cartoon from your childhood, who would it be? Oh, wow. Hey. I know that's a thought piece. I haven't even chosen something. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I did read a lot, and, you know, I mean, oh, wow. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I'm thinking, you know, if I'm going back to books from my childhood, I'm here thinking of Little House on the Prairie and Laura Ingalls Wilder. I mean, I enjoyed reading those books, and I love the pioneering spirit, you know. So, but um, you know, and I love reading reading Nancy Drew books, and mm-hmm. you know how she wandered all over her small town discovering things. But um, yeah, that's 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 the that's that's I, I've never thought about who would want. <laughs> I really spiral. Did enjoy. <laughs> No, it's okay. In the Caribbean, right? And so, right. Running around, you know, the beach and um, being outdoors. And, um, you know, we lived where there were lots of animals and still do. So, I just love the discovery of love nature. And so, um, growing up in the Caribbean, just being connected to the outdoors was fun for me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah. that actually wraps up, but that was a great answer. And I'm sorry to have this on your mind now, it seems like for the rest no. of the week. Um, but thank you for joining us. And we look forward right. to talking soon. Thank, thank you. you for having me. Take care. Y'all. Bye. And that wraps up our show. We appreciate you for listening in every Wednesday. Tell your mom, dad, sister, brother, friend, partners to tune in every Wednesday from 12 to 1. And before we wrap up, we want to know that our social media followers agreed thumbs up for children and team sports. So thank you for agreeing with us today. But you can disagree next week. And that is a wrap. This is Claire Dutre. And Sharon Watkins-Jones. And you have a great day. With a dream, my cardigan. Welcome to the land of fame, access. Am I gonna fit in? Jumped in the camp, here I am for the first time. Look to my right, and I see the Hollywood sign. This is all so crazy. Everybody seems so famous. My tummy's turning, and I'm feeling kinda homesick. Too much pressure, and I'm nervous. Cause when the taxi man turned on the
KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM and FM HD1. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes, their age, the way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy, boy who, who got, got his, his first, first job, job, not for extra spending?